0: Hello and welcome to a new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. I am your host, Sher Ali Tareen. For each new episode, which is an important new book in the broader field of Islamic Studies, and we chat with its author. In her stunning new book, Giving to God, Islamic Charity in Revolutionary Times, Amira Mittamaya, Associate Professor of Religion and Anthropology at the University of Toronto, Conducts a dazzling and at many times moving ethnography of an Islamic economy of giving and charity in Egypt. By presenting an intimate portrait of a range of actors and organizations who both give and receive charity, Mitamaya highlights often unrecognized political practices and horizons that disrupt dominant liberal secular logics of humanitarian charity. In our conversation, we discussed a range of topics, including the productive tension between revolutionary politics and everyday practices of giving, competing visions of the poor and of the interaction of charity and justice, intersections of social and divine justice, the relationship between eschatology, pious practices of charity and the materiality of the everyday, and the political possibilities offered by giving to God in a moment in Egypt marked by the rise and dominance of neoliberal authoritarianism. This splendidly written book will be widely discussed and debated by scholars of Islam, anthropology, religion, and the Middle East. It will also make a terrific text for courses on these and other topics. Here now is my conversation with Professor Mitamaya. Hello, Amira. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Very good, Amira. Thank you so much again for your time and for this wonderful book. Uh, which will spark a lot of very interesting debates and conversations. Uh, Amira, we have a tradition on the New Books Network that our first question is always biographical. So I was wondering if you could share with our listeners um, uh, how you became a scholar of Islam, the Middle East, and anthropology, and then how you got to write uh, this uh, particular book.
1: Sure. Um, So I guess my story begins with uh, growing up in Germany, but going to Egypt uh, pretty much every year, which is where my mother is from. And then uh, going back to Cairo for a year after high school to study Arabic um, and really developing a a deep interest in the place. Um, And then from there, I went into Islamic studies uh, in Germany at the University of Tubingen. And again, really just wanting to understand Egypt better. And I had At the time, I had the vague goal of becoming a journalist or a writer of some kind. Um, But what I found uh, with Islamic studies, at least as it was taught in Tübingen at the time, was that it just was extremely divorced from the place that I actually wanted to understand better. So I think the best example of that for me is still my um, Arabic teacher, who was a very well-established senior uh, German old-school Arabist at the time, literally telling us, uh, that we shouldn't go to the middle east uh, because it would ruin our arabic so basically pitching germany or the german university as the only place in which one could learn proper arabic which i found quite shocking at the time already um and also later looking back at that time i realized that no one uh, ever even mentioned uh, the work of edward said or the whole critique of the legacy of orientalism so Not having read Said at the time, but still feeling a a kind of disconnect, I decided after a couple of years to try something else. And I uh, escaped and went to the States for a year as an exchange student and ended up at the University of Michigan and really enjoyed the freedom of being able to take different kinds of classes and somewhat randomly signed up for an anthropology of the Middle East class not really knowing what anthropology meant at the time, um, but it was a class that was taught by Brinkley Messick, who was still in Michigan at the time and later became my supervisor. Um, and we read a whole bunch of ethnographies in that class. So we read uh, Leila *Veiled sentiments. We read uh, Smadalavis's uh, The Poetics of Military Occupation, Ted Swedenberg's Memories of Revolt, uh, Brinkley Messick's own The Calligraphic State. And these books really blew my mind. Um, I really found the experience completely transformative and I just fell in love with anthropology as a discipline and really just really appreciated the kinds of questions anthropologists ask and also the way they go about writing, um, the way in which they bring to life uh, or bring you into different life roles, um, but also very conscious of what representations do, or the very question of a politics of representation. Um, So I decided to switch to anthropology at that point, and I applied to direct entry PhD programs. I ended up at Columbia uh, in New York. Um, And then during the PhD, um, also somewhat reconnected with my interest in the field of Islamic studies. And then through... Bringing together my my kind of training in anthropology and Islamic studies, uh, out of that grew my interest in dreams in the Islamic tradition. Um, Dreams being really interesting, I found, because they're so central to the tradition, really at the core of the tradition and closely tied to prophecy and so on. But they're also... At least in in certain iterations of the tradition, pushed to the margins. So I thought dreams were really interesting, and I ended up doing fieldwork in Egypt on the topic of dreams with Sufi communities, dream interpreters, psychologists, um, and ordinary uh, dreamers. And out of that, that came my dissertation and then my first book, Dreams That Matter. Um, And really what I was interested in at the time was what I called an anthropology of the imagination. So thinking about the imagination, not just as fantasy, but as a mode of perception or also a space um, in, in Arabi's tradition, but also as I found it articulated by the dream interpreters and by ordinary Egyptians. Um, so, so that was the dream time, and that was really was really fun to think about dreams. But I also ended up spending much time around saint shrines in Cairo, because they were sites of interchange or, or exchange between dreamers who had been visited by, say, Sayyid in a dream, and then would go the following day and distribute food at the saint shrine to reciprocate this visit, um, and. While I was really interested in the imagination and the invisible and so on, I couldn't help but notice that the people who were hanging out around the same shrines um, were often simply uh, quite poor and after a bite to eat and maybe weren't that interested in this in this space of the imagination or, or had far more material concerns. And so this, this very tension or intersection between the material and the imaginary is then what got me interested in thinking about giving, about uh, what we generally often called charity, even though that's not a great translation for what I'm after. But so I decided my next project will be about giving. And uh, really, I was interested in these immediate forms of giving, especially the giving of food, Da'am in Arabic. Um, So the kind of giving that's often thought to be inefficient and short-sighted, the kind of giving that's literally about giving a man a fish and not about teaching him how to fish. And... um, Of course, there's a broader landscape of charity in Egypt. There are many charity organizations that have shifted to um, teaching a man how to fish, so to helping the poor help themselves, to funding micro-projects and so on. Um, Mona Atea calls this pious neoliberalism, and it's quite pervasive. But um, uh, what I was interested in ethnographically was precisely the stuff that didn't fit that turn. So, I ended up doing field work at, uh, in different spaces in which um, food is given, especially uh, charity organizations that engage in food distribution, uh, just individuals who, who dedicate themselves to making and distributing food, Ramadan tables, and also Sufi khidmas. And yeah, out of that uh, eventually came this book.
0: Terrific. Uh, so as a first question perhaps we could talk about the broader uh, theoretical concerns and interventions of this project and perhaps we can do that by uh, attending to the title of the book which has these two uh, elements which i think are the central uh, conceptual uh, uh, strands that uh, that run throughout this book one of course is this idea of uh, what you call god centered uh, giving or you know giving to god of course uh, as is in the title and uh, one of the key themes is how that uh, logic of giving Uh, disrupts uh, liberal secular notions of uh, charity, humanitarianism, etc. So I was wondering, one, if you could speak about that particular argument. And then secondly, uh, another theme that runs throughout the book is this very interesting uh, productive um, uh, tension between revolutionary politics given the moment at which you did your ethnography uh, in the unfolding of um, the uh, uh, protests of uh, 2011, uh, and then mundane everyday practices of giving—how how, how the, these two sort of went together—the uh, revolutionary politics and the everyday. So, I was wondering if you could also talk a bit about that aspect of uh, of the main argument.
1: Um- well, so to begin with the main title of the book, so Giving to God. Um the title is inspired by the phrase lileh, so literally to God or for God, which just showed up a lot in all kinds of contexts of giving that I was studying. Uh, and of course the lileh also shows up in other very commonly used phrases like Alhamdulillah or Shukr lileh or Al lileh. Um so I'm interested, as you said, in this in this very God-orientedness, um and I want to take it seriously. Um, so what I then seek to describe, or what I became interested in, is how this God-orientedness, sort of foregrounding of God, also brings with it a backgrounding of the poor who receive one's alms or or meet other meals. So I'm interested in how this God-centered uh, ethics of giving, uh, in a sense, erases or brackets the poor. And so basically, what I describe is a is a triadic uh, logic of giving. So you always have donor, recipient, and God in the picture, um, which can take different forms. So sometimes it takes the form of a more trade-like relationship where the poor are quite literally used as a medium for interacting with God or trading with God. Um, Or it can uh, show up in something that's closer to the donor erasing herself uh, as, so the donor becoming the medium in a sense in that, uh, the donor embodies divine generosity and, um, and in a sense gives the hand that gives is God's hand, one could say. So there's a different emphasis in this triad or, um, but there's a centrality of God across the board that I'm interested in. Um, and while I include both, uh, people we might call Sufi and others we might call Salafi in my book, I'm also interested in these commonalities and the shared God-orientedness. Um, so in a sense, I'm also interested in, in disrupting this, this Salafi-Sufi split a little bit. Um, so, so again, back to this idea of, of um to God, uh, meaning that you're, in a sense, bracketing the poor. This can show up quite literally in the sense that people giving a meal to someone living in the slums. Uh, might imagine uh, so someone doing this might imagine herself to be placing the meal directly into God's hand and again might not even look at the recipient Um, and at first sight I think this seems quite uncompassionate but then what I seek to show is that it also gets us around the very problems of compassion the problem of charity which is that um, compassion is always selective we are moved by the suffering of some and not the suffering of others Uh, compassion is People have argued, uh, reinscribes hierarchy, it creates indebtedness, and so on. Um, so I, I uh, seek to show that this, this Islamic ethics of giving disrupts these secular forms of charity, or also what um, Fassin, Didier Fassin calls humanitarian reason, which he says is a is a key ethos of our time, uh, a secularized version of a Christian emphasis on compassion. And an orientation, he says, that increasingly replaces a logic of rights. So basically, the giving I describe is precisely not human-oriented. Uh, it is not humanitarian. And it also, and this is important, it doesn't replace the logic of rights. In, in fact, it rights, the rights of the poor are quite central in this logic. And the idea is precisely that you give even if you don't feel like it or even if you don't feel compassion. So um, to me, this is a provocative um, ethics of giving precisely because it doesn't rely on compassion. It gets us around this problem of compassion. Um, but then to get to your second part of the question, my intention is not to somehow romanticize this ethics of giving or to celebrate it, um, or to describe it as some kind of, um, quaint religious practice. Um, But the book is rather, like you said, organized around this tension between this form of charity and the revolution and its call for social justice. So I uh, did a stretch of fieldwork, seven months of fieldwork, starting in June 2011. So meaning I got to Egypt a few months after the uprising. But this was still a very intense time. And The still Tahrir was reoccupied um, that summer and the the, the key ideas, the key calls of the uprising were still all around me. And among them, of course, bread, freedom, social justice as a key slogan. And uh, two parts of that slogan, of course, have to do, bread and social justice have to do with uh, distribution, uh, the problem of poverty and so on. So I uh, inevitably came to think about or move in the space between these revolutionary spaces and the spaces of giving and and kind of um, set with and set in this tension between this revolutionary desire to remake the world and then what my interlocutors were practicing, which is attending to needs in the here and now again and again and again. Um, and of course, I realized rather quickly that the activists that I was spending time with at Tahrir and in other spaces Um, thought that the kind of stuff I was studying was uh, profoundly anti-social justice. And this claim that charity is anti-social justice is what partially um, drives the conversation that runs throughout the book. Um, So I'm interested in challenging and disrupting this dichotomy by showing how my pious interlocutors are, in fact, enacting a form of justice, even though we might want to call it divine justice um and i'm also interested in having this other kind of justice um speak back to this um idea of social justice that gets thrown around a lot but if um people are pressed when you ask them to define it what i found increasingly is that uh, social justice in the end often uh, for many of these activists came to mean the call for social for equal opportunities and i find this call to again emphasize individual responsibility and effort and hard work and so on. And in some ways, um, I find in this echoes of neoliberalism and this ideology of self-reliance. And I think that, or what I hope to gesture towards is that this kind of giving that I described might point to other possible meanings and practices of justice. So in that sense, then the book is organized around this idea of, of in the meantime. So you have a revolution, you have Tahrir Square, you have all this Political uh, turmoil, and in the meantime, you have people just going about their lives. And in my case, this includes this continuous giving and receiving. And so, um, the tension uh, is is kind of the arc of the book. And I hope that what the book performs is this is in a sense an unlikely conversation where we put this revolutionary call for a better tomorrow, but also accounts of the, the Tahrir utopia into conversation with this um profoundly here and now oriented giving that i describe but um the the tension or this again i call it an unlikely conversation and also what i uh, ended up um uh, well, what the book ended up doing is that it also never it never resolves this tension fully right so it doesn't in the end i i i think you can't collapse the one world into the other and so i trace both these possible conversations and resonances but also the the frictions
0: Now, the uh, beginning uh, chapters of the book uh, focus a lot on the scene of the Tahrir uh, Square protests. And you show in very fascinating detail the sort of competing uh, visions of the poor and of this relationship between giving and justice that uh, we uh, saw and witnessed in the political possibilities opened up by the uh, uprising and by the Tahrir Square protests. Could you speak about uh, these uh, debates and these conversations around the notion of the poor or on this whole question of giving injustice that you saw uh, at that moment?
1: Sure. Um, but so first, I, I need to say that it's it's I find it very difficult to characterize the uprising's many voices and also... I uh, worked with after-the-fact accounts to a large extent because I was not there in January 2011 where a lot of um, the stuff was happening. Um, But what I did find through these after-the-fact conversations and also in these reoccupied spaces in the summer of 2011 is, again, that the the poor um, were quite central to a revolutionary rhetoric and they came to figure in all kinds of ways. Um, So, again, I already said that charity was often juxtaposed with um, this goal of social justice, even though I found that uh, in their own lives, many of the activists against this conviction or rhetorical claim did also engage in charitable practices. So the dichotomy wasn't always stable. Um, The poor themselves, of course, figured in the uprising as participants. So some of the people that I later came to know in the Ashwayat or the the poor areas of Cairo, or if you want to call them that, the slums, Some of these people had themselves participated in the uprising. Uh, Others from these backgrounds uh, were more cynical and told me that they were too busy trying to get by um, to join those kids playing revolution. Those are their words. Um, The poor, what interested me even more is that the poor also figured as a very central trope. So for instance, in the rhetoric of sacrifice, um, one example of which you have with Wael Roneim who talked about how he had a a great life um, by his villa with a pool, but then gave it up so that others could have a better future too. So basically the revolution isn't even for me, but I'm sacrificing my comfort for the poor or for for these others. Um, The poor also figured uh, as a foundation of legitimacy, I would say with especially the Muslim brotherhood um, coming into the political scene and deriving much political capital from their long standing social service provision so in many ways the Muslim Brotherhood could pitch itself as the guardians of the poor those who were there to provide when the state was absent um, and just to mention one one more version of this trope of the poor that I came across in the summer of 2011 and was quite interested in. There was a campaign that some people were running uh, called uh, the poor first and um, the, in the end, they called for a million man march in the name of the poor. It didn't happen for all kinds of reasons, but the debate was interesting. So on the one hand, you had people saying that the, the political goals of the revolution, the call for freedom and democracy and so on, Uh, was increasingly pushing aside the economic concerns, so the call for bread and social justice. Um, And so they argued that uh, the revolution had been about the poor and we should keep the poor central. Um, But then you also had some opponents who argued that um, one shouldn't organize one's politics around the poor, that people would in fact not even identify with this category, and that um, putting the poor first transformed A political act into a charity walk, again, their words. Um, So you shouldn't organize your politics around pity. Um, So this is an interesting critique, of course, that resonates with Hannah Arendt's uh, writings on the French Revolution. But I also found that it's a quite provocative place from which to think about this Islamic ethics of giving that I'm interested in, because again, this is an ethics of giving um, that, so, again, committed to a certain understanding of justice, but it's not about pity and it's not uh, even about the poor, but it's about God, right? So again, you have this backgrounding of the poor, foregrounding of God. And I think that there's an interesting resonance here with these critiques of uh, politics of pity.
0: One of the things that I really appreciated about uh, the book Amira is the kind of um, fascinating detail in which the ethnography uh, narrates the sort of conflicting narratives and stories of multiple kinds of actors and their activities and conceptions of giving and so on. And uh, I think which will also make this book uh, uh, eminently teachable also in multiple undergraduate and graduate seminars. But one of the figures you focus on in one of the earlier chapters is a figure uh, called uh, Sheikh Salah. And uh, I was wondering if you could talk, uh, uh, tell our listeners a bit about who uh, is uh, Sheikh Salah and uh, how does uh, divine justice and social justice uh, come together in his uh, thought and his activities?
1: Mm-hmm. Um so Sheikh Salah is a, is a really wonderful person he's also a wonderfully complex person uh, so much so that I um, decided to dedicate a whole uh, chapter to him and could in fact have probably written a whole book about him um he's someone who who used to work for the the Egyptian military is now retired and now runs a Khitma not far from Tahrir Square. So he's uh, located next to the Zayda Zainab Mosque. Um, So one of these mosques in Cairo, in which um, someone from Ahl al-Beit, the Prophet's descendants, is buried, in this case, the Prophet's granddaughter, um, a saint shrine and a place that in and of itself already mediates divine justice, a place to which people turn uh, in in searching for divine justice. Um, So it's significant that this is is in that, Place um, the khidma. So hitma literally means service. Um, here is short for khidma lila, service for God. Uh, once again, and um, the khidma in the Egyptian context is a, a Sufi space in which food is given out, or in some cases also people can find a place to sleep. Um, and the khidma as a as a space or a principle is really at the heart of the book. Um, so Sheikh Salah runs a khidma. He's been doing this for the past uh, however many years. And basically this means that every day he lives in Helwan kind of quite far, but he comes in every morning, seven days a week. He cooks for hours, uh, first buys the ingredients, then cooks for hours and then makes uh, takes the food over to the mosque and distributes two meals every day to the people there. This will include people who are just passing by or visiting, uh, said Zainab, uh, and receive this food as a form of barakah or blessing. Um, but uh, many of the people who receive the meals uh, are in fact regulars, and often they're people who are who are very, uh, again, don't have any income and rely on these meals. Um, and Sheikh Salah is an interesting person again because he's he's also a very outspoken person, which runs counter to other. Sufis, running khidmas that I came to know who are just far more on the side of uh, secrecy and not talking about their giving. But Sheikh Salah was quite outspoken, also outspoken about his um, political views, very critical of um, the situation in Egypt, critical of the inequalities and the structural conditions that perpetuate these inequalities, critical of the failures of the state and so on. Um, And so within this context, he then comes to call food a divine minimum wage, uh, which is a beautiful phrase, I think, because it collapses this very distance between divine justice and social justice, or it collapses this distance between a revolutionary language and the, the charitable everyday practice. Um, and it does so quite beautifully, I think. Um, but again, uh, he's a complex figure with very uh, many different views, including um, what I found interesting is that at first when he decided to dedicate himself to this this kind of work uh, before he was called upon by by Zayde Zeynep to to start a chitma, at first he wanted to help the poor help themselves. Um, So more along the lines of teaching a man how to fish, literally wanted to go into the homes of people in poor neighborhoods and coach them in how to better organize their homes and organize their lives, um, how to be more efficient and so on. So one could I was at times tempted to read him as a quite neoliberal figure, um, because again, he's very invested in this project of helping the poor help themselves. Um, again, this version of a pious neoliberalism almost that Mona Atea writes about, um, and at times, uh, he also surprised me with, so while he was very critical of, again, structural conditions that perpetuate inequality, at times he would also say things such as that the poor are poor because they fall short in their religious obligations. They don't pray. They don't fast. And so poverty here is a, is a form of divine punishment, which is a view that I didn't come across in other contexts. Um, but so what's so compelling and interesting about Sheikh Salah is that despite these views, right? So, despite blaming the poor, despite thinking that really we should teach the poor how to help themselves, he nevertheless gives every single day. He cooks every single day. He hands out food every single day, and he does so precisely because he was uh, called upon by the Zenob to give, but also because he thinks once again that food is a divine minimum wage. So, this tension or this this fact that, regardless of his political views, regardless of whether where he places the blame or whether he has judgments about the poor or whether he feels compassion for them or not. All of this doesn't matter because again, um, what he's giving is a divine minimum wage. So again, it's not compassion driven giving here, but rather a sense of of duty or a sense of of the rights of the poor.
0: And uh, the next uh, chapter focuses on an organization uh, called Risala. And uh, uh, Could you share with our listeners a bit what this organization is and you also show in this chapter the sort of again very varied and conflicting logics of volunteering that you find among the volunteers at Rasala and uh, ways in which uh, their logics bring together concerns of the afterworld or eschatology and uh, their own uh, everyday piety and the materiality of uh, these uh, spaces that they visit uh, as part of their giving practices so if you could also speak a bit about how these uh, different elements come together in how they imagine uh, volunteering.
1: Mm -hmm. So, so there are many, many charity organizations in Egypt today, and uh, Risala is one of the bigger ones that we have today. It was founded in 1999. Um, It's an interesting organization because it relies almost entirely on young volunteers. It's a huge organization at this point, very vibrant, lively, has many branches throughout Egypt and also throughout Cairo. It was started by an engineering professor and his students, a a small number of students. um, And this uh, engineering professor at the time was interested or continues to be interested in strengthening Egypt's civil society. And in fact, he had um, come across this idea of volunteering somewhat ironically in Kingston, Canada, which is not far from where I live, where he spent some time during his studies. So he found that uh, many Canadians volunteer, he says, uh, and he wanted to import the spirit of volunteering to Egypt. So Risala here stands for, m- literally means message, and he stands for the, the very message of volunteering, the idea of volunteering that, again, he wanted to spread um, in Egypt. So for him, quite importantly, or at least he he often emphasized to me, um, volunteering is not uh, something that I should be reading as something inherently Islamic um, it's, an, it's a universal thing. It, it shares the same commitments uh, across the globe. Um, but uh, what I found on the ground in spending a lot of time with the volunteers is that they, um, somewhat counter to the founders' vision, uh, very much ground their volunteering within an Islamic logic. And so the the volunteers that I came to spend a lot of time with um, where people, a number of which called themselves Salafis, um, meaning simply that they were seeking to embody a very pious lifestyle and to orient themselves toward God. Uh, in, in every minute of their lives um and so they uh went about volunteering um and especially about um giving out food Ita'am is an activity at risala literally the giving of food so they went about itam as a way very literally of trading with god and very explicitly so There you will hear phrases such as the poor are our gate to paradise. The poor don't need us, but we need the poor. Um, And again, ita'am is a way of of collecting points toward this place in paradise. Um, And of course, this very logic of point counting is one that's often ridiculed in other religious circles in Egypt. Um, So a number of my Sufi interlocutors would say that you can't really... Uh, hold God accountable in this way. Um, It's also something that's often ridiculed in more secular circles, including in North America, when I've spoken about Rizala and their meticulous point counting. But what came to interest me is how this very calculative logic and and seemingly very selfish orientation, again, aiming for a place in paradise, is precisely what takes the volunteers into these slum neighbourhoods um so they go twice a week um they spend the entire day cooking and then going into the slum and distributing these meals to people that have been identified as being uh, in need by usually a local charity organization um so the volunteers go into the slums they give and again it's not uh, a giving that's driven by pity and sometimes literally they will not even look at the people that they're giving the meals to also, sometimes quite explicitly, they will talk on the trips to these neighborhoods on the bus. They have they go on the Arisala bus, and it's usually someone giving a lesson um, um, and kind of discussing what it is they're doing. Um, so literally, sometimes they will say that uh, what they're doing is different from what Christians do. Christians um, try to do good and to be good and so give out of love and compassion that's not what we're doing. We're, we're giving because God has ordered us to do so. So again, a logic of duty, not one of loving or or feeling compassion for those at the receiving end. Um, of course, on the ground, it can all get very messy. So literally, when you look toward paradise, it might mean that you're not even looking at the people you're giving the meals to. Um, but sometimes um, what can also happen is that people deeply immersed in this logic of paradise. But when they go into the slums, they end up breaking down and they end up being really shocked. And they sometimes even become politicized through these trips. So the the lines between the the kind of otherworldly and the worldly are deeply unstable. And uh, trying to To capture this uh, instability and this messiness, Um, the chapter that I have under the Salah purposefully follows a day with the volunteers. So one of these trips Um, and what I hope to show uh, in this chapter is precisely that um, even seemingly very otherworldly oriented Muslims, so very paradise oriented Muslims, are not at all turned away from this world. But it's precisely, again, this concern with paradise and a God-orientedness that drives the volunteers into the slums again and again. So the, it's, again, a um, different version of, but again, a not compassion-driven logic of giving, uh, a God-oriented logic of giving, but one that's uh, persistent and, and very committed to the very act of giving
0: Now, in the next uh, uh, two chapters, uh, uh, Amira, you make the very interesting and important argument that in an Islamic economy of giving, it's not only uh, giving that's important, but also uh, being a recipient of charity is also a very important part of uh, the Islamic economy of giving. Uh, So I was wondering if you could speak a bit about that argument and uh, how does one cultivate uh, becoming uh, a recipient of uh, charity by talking about these two examples of two very different figures that occupy uh, the next two chapters, the figures of uh, Sheikh Mahmoud and then uh, Amal.
1: Sure. Um, Well, so again, uh, I was just saying when I spoke about the Risala volunteers, they're quite aware that the poor don't need us, but we need the poor. Um, I mean, there's a complex logic to why the poor don't need us. But uh, what's interesting here is this idea of needing the poor. So in order to give to God, you need the poor um, to embody God's hand as a receiving hand. So um, even though in this triad, the poor can be erased or bracketed. They are ultimately very central, of course, to this uh, in economy and ethics of giving. Um, But also in a more ethnographic sense, I realized over time that I don't want to write a book about Islamic charity that's just about giving, but that I also want to think about an ethics of receiving. And so even though I'm, again, theoretically interested in this erasure of the poor, I don't want to erase the poor in my ethnography. So I ended up then uh, including uh, two chapters after the two chapters on giving, the two chapters on receiving. Uh, And as you said, we meet two very different kinds of recipients. So the first of them is Amal, who lives in Meet Okba, which is, a um, again, one of the Ashwiyat, a rather poor neighborhood in the middle of Mohandasin, that I first uh, went to with Risala volunteers to distribute food there. Uh, So Amal lives there. She's a single mom. She has five kids. And she... uh, taught me basically what things look like from the receiving. And it simply took me along in her many attempts to cobble together whatever she needs to for her kids to, to have something to eat and to be able to go to school and so on. So she tries to, to cobble together resources from the state, um, So social affairs office from different charity organizations, from friends, including me at times. Uh, Also for a while, she was running a a kiosk, a kushk, um, but wasn't wasn't really generating any income with that. But so she tries all kinds of things. Um, What I came to understand through her, by spending time with her, is that this idea of um, divine justice or an ethics of giving that's tied to divine justice doesn't always quite work out when you're at the receiving end, right? So um, God provides, um, but divine provisions are still channeled through humans. We're back to the triad, um, and they don't always reach the people who need them. So, I think of this chapter in many ways as the most worldly chapter. So, God is in the picture, um, but um, doesn't always, the divine provisions don't always reach Amal when she needs them. It's also in many ways the darkest chapter of the book, I think. Um, So, Amal herself is quite aware of an Islamic uh, logic of giving. So, she's She also attends religious lessons, including adrisala at times. So she's aware that in theory, because she's in need, um, she's entitled to a share of the wealth of others. She's aware of concepts like Haqq al-Faqir. She's aware that in Islam, there's this idea of a rightful share. Um, But she's also, of course, very very aware that it doesn't always quite work this way. So what she ends up doing is is, uh, often uh, perform her suffering. Um, especially in encounters with state officials, but not only Uh, the most extreme version of this is her um, occasional threat to commit suicide as the ultimate performance of suffering. Um, So again, that's why I call it the darkest chapter. It's in a sense a chapter that's about the limits of this divine justice and uh, that tries to show uh, what it's like to live in a highly unequal society. Um Sheikh Mahmoud is the complete opposite in many ways. So he's uh, also poor, but he's poor in a quite different way, um, in a way that draws partially on the Sufi tradition of the Dervish and the fakir, and so on. So poverty in a different sense. Um, so... With Amal, what I write about are her performances of suffering, which in some ways show also that um, this problem of compassion isn't fully circumvented in this Islamic ethics of giving that I describe, right? There's still compassion in the counterpart of suffering, at least her attempt to to evoke it or to tap into some kind of compassion. But so while with Amal, you have uh, performances of suffering, with Sheikh Mahmoud, you have what I call performances of entitlement. Um, I spent quite a lot of time with Sheikh Mahmoud at another khidmer. Um and she, the way I came to know Sheikh Mahmoud there is that he basically will never say please or thank you. He will simply demand, again, performing entitlement. He will demand to be served food by the woman running the Khidmah, to be served tea, to be served ashisha, shisha. He will demand cash from me. Um, and... Of course, uh, in the tradition of the dervish, he's challenging social norms. But um, I think he's also taking to the extreme, in a sense, the idea that nothing belongs to us, that human possessions are illusionary. And also, importantly, that there is no difference between those giving and those receiving, that ultimately we are all poor in relation to God. Um, So I, I kind of juxtapose these two characters, if you want to call them that. Uh, And I also write in my own limits in the Sheikh Mahmoud chapter because he's really the one that made me realize the most that I'm quite used myself to a logic of please and thank you. Um, But again, over time, what I gained from him is uh, insight into what it might mean to take this logic of all comes from God and all belongs to God and all goes to God to its logical conclusion. Um, So Amal and uh, Sheikh Mahmoud again, in a sense, are showing us this broader spectrum, spectrum of what it looks like at the receiving end, um, to receive from God, but also always through humans.
0: So as the final uh, substantive uh, question, Amir, I was wondering if you could return to the uh, theme with which we began our conversation, which is one of the major arguments of the book to uh, uh, explore ways in which uh, uh, these uh, logics of giving that you document in this book uh, question and disrupt certain kinds of uh, liberal secular understandings of humanitarianism. I was wondering if you can come back to that larger argument in the context of um, the more recent uh, past of Egypt. And uh, you talk very evocatively in the, in the final uh, section of your book about uh, ways in which these, uh, the emergence of this uh, neoliberal authoritarianism uh, in Egypt uh, made possible for Uh, some of these logics to continue on the ground but in uh, vastly different conditions than say eight years ago so sort of a broad general question of um, uh, could you talk a bit about that discussion in the the, uh, at the end of your book about uh, thinking about this idea of giving in this uh, very different uh, context of a sort of a neoliberal authoritarianism
1: sure um yeah thank you for coming back to the question of the disruptive potential it's one that's that's um quite important to me, to the book, but also, again, a kind of unresolved tension of the book. Um, so first off, I would say once again that, that the kind of giving I described disrupts this dichotomy, presumed dichotomy between what we might call charity and social justice. So what I hope the book shows is that the kind of giving that people like Sheikh Salah and Der volunteers and so on practice is itself a form of justice, precisely because it's not about compassion, but it's about again a logic of duty and rights and so on, or a divine minimum wage, if you wish. Um, I also, especially in the in the last chapter, um, try to show how the kind of giving I describe disrupts a, a, a future-orientedness, um, which comes through quite clearly in the post-revolutionary moment. So with Sisi's presidency, which among other things has been brought with it a return to a a grand vision of development and uh, a belief in in mega projects, uh, the building of a new capital city, the building of the new Suez Canal, and so on. So a constant gazing to the future, the promise of a better tomorrow at the expense of today. Um, So... What I what I see at work here is a logic of sacrifice in a way of just needing to wait it out, tighten one's belt, um, wait it out, be patient. Tomorrow will be better. Um and of course, this future-orientedness makes the kind of giving I'm interested in look even more short-sighted. Um, because the 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 it'am giving of food particularly has a temporality that's all about the here and now. It is also in many cases about paradise, but Paradise to me is of a different temporality altogether, so not really a linear, future-oriented temporality. But that's a different story. But so the disruptive potential here is in the in the kind of CC era is precisely that there's a persistent uh, here and now orientness that is enacted that I think challenges the logic that somehow a better future can justify sacrificing the here, the the, the present. Um, So those are some some of the disruptive potentials I see. And now I I would say I locate this disruptive potential in these particular iterations of of the Islamic tradition. Um, But in thinking about these political possibilities, I'm also interested in resonances, even though they're uneasy resonances with, for instance, uh, what James Ferguson describes in his uh, provocative book, Giving a Man a Fish. Um, This is a book uh, about basic income programs that, of course, uh, are experiments taking part in very different contexts in different parts of the world, certainly not in Egypt. But what these uh, basic income programs share, at least in James Ferguson's reading, the way he he thinks about them, is that they also stand against or disrupt uh, what he calls a productionist paradigm. So, again, the idea that somehow teaching a man to fish is better than giving a man a fish. So he he takes up this um, globally recycled uh, proverb and uh, says that basically what we need is not more fish or more fishermen or fisherwomen for that matter, um, but what we need is a is a different system of distribution. Right? We don't need um, we need to distribute the fish differently, um, and. Again, this is a very different context, um, not Islamic, not a, it's, it's about a, a state-run uh, program. But basic income as a concept is also about not having to say please and thank you, uh, such as Sheikh Mahmoud, in line with what Sheikh Mahmoud uh, embodies. It's not about having to perform on suffering. So again, counter to what Amal has to do. Um, so I'm interested in these resonances and these way, the ways in which these different logics of of duty and rights might come together or allow us ways of thinking about these political potentials uh, in the um, again uh, Islamic traditions that I'm tracing ethnographically. And then at the same time, what I need to say is that I'm also quite uh, wary of doing violence to the practices I describe by forcing them or translating them into this political framework. So reading some kind of revolutionary or utopian potential into them. Um, This is where I come back to the chitma. So the Khitma uh, as a principle, as a space, as a practice is uh, very much not about building a better world. Um, And This refusal to look to the future, I think, is precisely in the end where the most radical and disruptive potential lies. Um, But this means, again, that I'm left with attention or the book really leaves, I hope, the reader with attention, which is that an unresolved tension, which is, again, that I neither want to bracket off the practices I describe as somehow quaint uh, religious practices that have nothing whatsoever to say to politics, uh, but I, at the same time, don't want to subsume everything under the label of politics. So the Chitma also disrupts this very question of politics in my reading. And this is again, went back to the central tension uh, around my own search for political possibilities and my um, ethnographic. Uh, commitment to also being true to what the Khitma is about, which is the here and now and not some kind of better pro- better future down the road.
0: So as we're coming to the end of our time, Amira, I was wondering if you could uh, share with our uh, listeners a bit about what you're thinking of as uh, the next uh, project.
1: Yeah, um, sure. So my my next project, which I'm just kind of starting to embark on, is in some ways continuing with my interest in the invisible and in the imagination in the way that I described earlier. Uh, I call it at this point an ethnography of God. Um, And it comes partially out of just thinking a lot about God, even in in this charity project, again, giving, what does it mean to give to God? What does it mean to to need the poor in order to give to God. Um, it also comes out of the sense that God is generally uh, strikingly absent from the anthropology of Islam. Um, there are many great questions coming out of the anthropology of Christianity: um, the question of presence, the questions of uh, the question of transcendence and immanence, and how they play out in concrete social and political contexts. Um, and, um, so anthropologists of Christianity writing about, uh, for instance, people literally setting aside a dinner plate for God, um, to work on miracles and other forms of mediation. And again, thinking about divine presence to, in the ways in which it is mediated in people's lives. Um, I, um, uh, in some, uh, I would say, Orientalist uh, works, Uh, God is often, God in the Islamic traditions often portrayed as quite transcendent. Um, I think this is a problematic portrayal, and I think God is actually profoundly present in all kinds of ways, at least in the life worlds that I've come to know through my fieldwork. So I'm interested in in thinking about God, again, not um, ethnographically, so an ethnography of God, uh, not a theological project but also wanting to look at how the big theological questions are grappled with in the everyday. Um, I'm drawn back to Egypt for this project. Uh, I think Egypt is a, is a is a fitting place for this project right now because religion or Islam uh, is reimagined in so many ways in this post-revolutionary moment, which is also the post-Raba'a moment and the post-Islamist moment. So I'm um, starting to map out different sites and, and um, questions through which one can grapple with God ethnographically, I think. So things like miracles, uh, questions of Baraka, uh, prayer, um, dreams, God's 99 names and how people relate to them and to God through them, divine signs, divine demands, also questions of doubt or uh, atheism, say. Um, I'm beginning at this point with uh, what I think of as sites of heightened God talk. Um, So places in which people engage actively or reimagine their relationship to God quite actively, which concretely at this point means working with the remarkable number of uh, former activists who've since 2011 turned away from politics and have turned somewhat surprisingly to me and also to them, I think, have turned to Sufism and have joined Sufi orders. So at this point I'm working with, Uh, with um, those kind of new Sufis and and thinking with them about how they're reimagining or relating to God in their lives and in their
0: communities. Giving to God, Islamic Charity in Revolutionary Times, published by the University of California at Berkeley Press uh, by Professor Amira Mittamaya. Thank you so much, Amira, for this uh, outstanding uh, uh, and uh, thought-provoking book and for your time Uh, again today in uh, uh, talking to us at New Books Network. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: So this was my conversation with Professor Amira Mittemeyer about her wonderful new book, Giving to God. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. And I hope that you will also join us next time for another episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. I should also mention here in closing that uh, this interview marks my 50th interview with the New Books Network. I would like to appreciate and thank all listeners, uh, all the authors and the New Books Network uh, for this wonderful opportunity uh, that uh, I have been a part of for the last uh, seven years now. I should also especially acknowledge here uh, two uh, of the 50 authors I've interviewed uh, who are no longer with us. Uh, Professor Kavita Datla and Professor Sabah Mahmood. Uh, until next time, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off. Take care, stay well, and keep listening to new books in Islamic studies.